Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com. Christ is born, glorify him. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. On what is the end of the year, close end of the year, but also the end of the observance, liturgically speaking, of the nativity of Jesus Christ. Notice they didn't say it's the end of Christmas, because Christmas itself implies a little bit more. I was very specific there, that it was the end of the observance of the actual nativity of Christ. But now we have in a liturgical calendar, both of East and West, the Eastern and Western lines of the church, we have a continual unfolding of the birth of Christ and all that that means. In other words, the unfolding of the incarnation the incarnational event. So what's happening now is a manifestation. We're going to look towards the epiphanic dimension of this event of Christ's nativity. We rejoiced in the fact that Christ has come in the flesh. God has united heaven and earth in the person of Jesus Christ. God has taken on flesh while remaining God. But now, what does that mean? How do we unfold that? How does it emanate outward from the manger? In the Byzantine liturgical calendar, what we do today is we look at this particular Sunday, happens to be the Sunday after Christmas, in which we look at the relatives of Jesus. I'm sure many of you got together with relatives during the Christmas season, are still going to, especially as we head towards New Year's and other feast days. Well, we get together with Jesus' relatives as well. And of course, it means something, these particular relatives, David, Joseph, and James. David, of course, represents the Old Testament. What the church is doing is it's telling us that this Jesus is the one that was predicted in the Old Testament. This is the Jesus, the Messiah that came from the lineage of David. So he's the one that everyone's been waiting for. Everyone's been predicting. The prophets would prophesy about. He's the one, and that's symbolized by David, relative of the Lord. Then, of course, Joseph, his foster father. And then James, his cousin. Or sometimes the word is used actually literally in the Eastern churches as brother. In the Eastern church, there was a belief that James was in fact the brother Lord, but by Joseph and by a previous marriage. In the West, they stick to the interpretation that brother in the original language meant something in a little broader sense, a more encompassing sense, meaning it could be cousin, a very close relative. Sometimes we say that even today in common language. You say, oh, this is my brother. We're like brothers. Well, in the Western tradition, they stick to that in a more comprehensive way, meaning that brother could mean cousin or close relative. In the East, there's a tradition that it, in fact, meant brother, but not not the child of Mary. The Virgin Mary did not have any other children other than, of course, Christ. 
So whatever interpretation, it's a closeness in relation to Christ. And what this is telling us, as always, is always something to this that makes it relevant and real to us, makes it timely. Remember, this is about us. This is not just history lessons. Through the genius of the liturgical life of the church, and in particular, now we're looking at the Byzantine liturgical calendar for this Sunday, it draws us into the awareness of our relationship to Christ. In other words, it's about relationship now. God has reestablished, renewed a relationship, a new relationship with all creation, and particularly with us. So now the question is, what do we do with this Jesus? He's kind of plopped into our reality. He's plopped into the manger. God sort of plops himself, to be kind of simplistic, into his own creation. He's among us now, as we say in our church, and God is with us. So what do we do about it? That's the question. He's here. The rays of his light is only emanating outward, as we see in the icon, outward to touch all of humanity, all of creation. We do not go untouched by this. So what do we do? What is our relationship to the Lord? So that's why we focus on the close relations of David, both his heritage in King David, but also his foster father and his cousin or brother, whichever close relative, James, who, as we again want to emphasize, he was not the son of the Virgin Mary. James is not the son of the Virgin Mary. May have been the son of Joseph, as many in the East believe. But regardless, the point is he was a close relative, and that is the question for us. How close are we truly to this Jesus? What is our relationship now to this God among us, this God in the flesh? We also look then towards the beginning of the new year. And the Byzantine liturgical calendar, that secular new year, January 1st, begins with the feast of the circumcision of our Lord Jesus Christ and, it's a double feast day, also the feast of St. Basil the Great, Archbishop of Caesarea. There are three great fathers of the church that we often focus on in the East, that is Gregory Nazianzus, St. Basil the Great, and St. John Chrysostom, and they all come together on January 30th. There's a common feast day, but they each have their own feast day. Well, January 1st, just two days from now, is the feast day of Basil the Great, Archbishop of Caesarea. Now, we look at the circumcision of our Lord, and sometimes you might say to ourselves, maybe we scratch our head, why would we focus on that? It's not as big a feast in the Latin church, but it's very much a distinctive feast in the Eastern churches, the circumcision of our Lord. In fact, we say on this day, January 1st, in his love for the human race, the Savior condescended and willed to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, eight days old, according to his mother, and eternal according to his father, he did not look down upon the circumcision of the flesh. Therefore, O believers, let us cry out to him, you are our God, have mercy on us. Why circumcision? Why do we focus on that particular feast day so much in the Eastern Church? Well, we're going to explain that with a little help even of a Western saint, Thomas Aquinas, and also from a wonderful book called The Sexuality of Christ in Renaissance Art and in Modern Oblivion. Long title there, The Sexuality of Christ in Renaissance Art and in Modern Oblivion by Leo Steinberg. I consider this to be a real classic, theologically speaking and artistically speaking. My background, of course, is in art, and so it's a particular interest of mine. This particular book is amazing. Highly recommend it for a wonderful blend of how the art and architecture of the church expresses the theology. Now, when it comes to the circumcision in Mr. Steinberg's book, he refers to a number of authors and references going back in the Middle Ages. I'm going to quote from the book in various places. 
As we heard earlier in the quote that I read from the liturgical services in the Byzantine Church for January 1st, so too in Mr. Steinberg's book, he says this, that Christ's submission to circumcision was understood as a voluntary gift of his blood, prefiguring and initiating the sacrifice of the passion. See, what's amazing about the circumcision is that there's a connection between that wound and that flow of blood with the passion of Jesus Christ. And in fact, Mr. Steinberg points out many different passages of theologians and people who gave homilies during the Middle Ages, and especially art, Renaissance art. That's why the book is referred to as being about Renaissance art and about Jesus Christ and this aspect of him. In other words, his masculinity, how that was portrayed in Renaissance art and how that made real Christ humanness, and in particular, in the subject of the circumcision. Now, he also quotes Thomas Aquinas. So, we're going to look at a Western saint to help explain a little bit about the Eastern observance of the circumcision of our Lord. He says, Thomas Aquinas gives reasons why Christ should have been circumcised. In the first place, there are seven reasons that Thomas Aquinas gives. First, to show the reality of the human flesh against the Manichaean who taught that he had a body which was merely appearance against Apollinarius, who said that the body of Christ was consubstantial with his divinity, and against Valentinus, who taught that Christ brought his body from heaven. Second, to show approval of circumcision, which God of old had instituted. Third, to prove that he was of the stock of Abraham, who received the command about circumcision as a sign of the faith which he had in Christ. Fourth, to deprive the Jews of a pretext for not receiving him, had he been uncircumcised. Fifth, to commend the virtue of obedience to us by his example. And so he was circumcised on the eighth day, as was prescribed in the law. Sixth, that he who had come in the likeness of the sinful flesh should not spurn the customary remedy for which sinful flesh had been cleansed. Seventh, to take the burden of the law upon himself, so as to liberate others from that burden. So there's many deep, significant reasons, as pointed out by Thomas Aquinas in Mr. Steinberg's book, as to why Christ is circumcised. And this also gives us the why as to why it is such an important feast day in the Byzantine Catholic calendar. Now, Mr. Steinberg says in his book, the passion pictures that guide the trickle of the blood from the breast to the loin area of Christ is like a blood hyphen between commencement and consummation. We're going to talk more about the deep, beautiful meaning, actually, of Christ's circumcision when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Why does St. Nicholas deliver gifts under the cover of night? Well, that tradition began in my hometown of Patara in Asia Minor when I came to the help of a destitute man who had three grown daughters. He was so poor that he could barely feed them. Because he was so desperate, 
he was tempted to sell them into slavery. Then I remembered the words of Jesus who said, When you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. And so I put together three bags of gold coins and tossed them through the window at night to help them. That was the first of my midnight visits. And that's the reason to this very day, even when I'm dressed as Santa Claus, I still deliver gifts under the cover of night. May the same love, joy, and peace that the angels proclaimed on that first Christmas animate your own heart to give hope to those most in need. For Christ is born. Glorify Him. <laughs> You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. And this is kind of a triple header today. We have the Sunday after Christmas in which we commemorate relations of the Lord, people close to him in relationships, such as his foster father, Joseph, his cousin or brother, James, or in other words, Jesus's half-brother, and his ancestor, David, which, as we mentioned earlier, makes us mindful of our relationship with Christ, who is now among us. What do we do with him? What do we do about him? What do we do in relation to him? Secondly, it is one of the concluding days, almost done, tomorrow's the last day, of the observance of the nativity itself, but not the end of the observance of Christmas per se. Because when I say the word Christmas, I mean more than just the nativity. I mean this whole unfolding, this whole epiphanic movement, this process of revealing, of manifesting God among us, which is going to take form in a number of ways, one of which, and that th- brings us to our third layer today, the Feast of the Circumcision of our Lord, which is going to be January 1st, the beginning of the year in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. We're talking about the meaning of that, drawing upon a great book by Leo Steinberg, who's also quoting a great Western saint, St. Thomas Aquinas. Mr. Steinberg also says this, that the circumcision of Christ, wherein the incarnation is verified, the passion launched, and the resurrection presaged, in other words, foreshadowed, is the pledge and commencement of human salvation, the symbol of Christ's passion and its beginning. One of the points that he makes in this book is, I think, a very significant point for us today. And he talks about how artists were able to portray this because they knew this and they were free enough to portray it. The artists knew that when Christ was circumcised, there's so many layers of meaning in that. But it was the shedding of blood. It was pain. And it was in the area of his body, of course, that we associate with procreation, with the passion, with the spousal relationship. And what does this mean? Well, it's very profound, very meaningful. It means that Christ came to be the sacrificial bridegroom who would enter into a spousal relationship with his bride, the church, and spend himself entirely, give of his very self, his very body and blood for that bride. And that would come to its consummation on the cross when he once again would receive a wound at the hands of a knife. Or it would no longer be a cut, but it would be a thrust, a lance. It would open the side of his body 
And from that would come the bodily life fluids of water and blood, which of course prefigure the Eucharist. They prefigure the church. So there's this connection between the suffering of Christ as an eight-day-old infant, which is prefiguring his suffering on the cross. Already he receives the wound at eight days old, which will be consummated, come to its fullness at the consummation of the mystical marriage on the cross. Well, once again, his body will be opened, only this time with a spear, a knife-like instrument. And once again, blood, the life-giving fluid would flow. And it would flow as he gave up his life. So from beginning to the end of Christ's life, the shedding of blood, the opening of his body through a wound tells us the mission, the purpose of the incarnation, why this Christ came and was born among us as a little baby in a manger in a cave, so that he could lay his life down and be the supreme sacrifice. He would pay the ransom. He would redeem us by the shedding of his very blood, by the giving of his very body. So circumcision has a very profound meaning for us. Is a profound meaning also in terms of Christ's humiliation, his condescension, what length he would go to, not only to endure something that was meant for sinners, but the fact that he would lower himself to observe and submit to his own law, which he didn't need, he was God. He made that law for us, and yet he would submit himself to it, although he didn't need it. What great humility. What great, as we say in the Eastern Church, divine condescension. Well, as I mentioned, we also celebrate today the Feast of St. Basil the Great. Three of them are celebrated together, Basil, John, and Gregory, in the Eastern calendar on January 30th. But they each had their own feast day. A little bit about St. Basil the Great. And I read from the Synaxarian, which is the book of saints for our church, which is read each day. St. Basil was born in the reign of the Emperor Constantine in about 330 A.D., While still unbaptized, he spent 15 years in Athens studying philosophy, rhetoric, astronomy, and other contemporary secular disciplines. Among his fellow students were Gregory the theologian and Julian, later the apostate emperor. When already of mature years, he was baptized in the Jordan together with his former tutor, Evulius. He was bishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia for nearly 10 years and died at the age of 50. A great champion of the true faith, a great torch of moral purity and zeal for the faith, a great theological mind, a great builder, and a pillar of the church, Basil fully deserved his title, the Great. In the office for his feast, he is referred to as a bee of the church of Christ, bringing honey to the faithful but stinging those in heresy. Many of the writings of this father of the church have survived, theological, apologetic, on asceticism, and on the canons. There is also the liturgy that bears his name. The liturgy is celebrated ten times in the year in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. That's on January 1st, coming up, of course, on the eve of Christmas and Theophany on every Sunday in the Great Fast, with the exception of Palm Sunday, and on the Thursday and Saturday in Great Week. St. Basil departed this life peacefully on January 1st, 379, and entered into the kingdom of Christ. I am 58 years old. In a couple months, I'll be 59 already. I can't believe I'm steaming towards the big 6-0. Whenever I read the lives of these saints, especially someone like St. Basil the Great, who only lived till he was 50, I'll tell you on a personal level, it's very humbling for me, because I think of what these great saints accomplished in such short time. And many of them died even younger. But it was amazing. They were amazing men. So it's kind of humbling, but it's also motivating. 
and motivates us as we look at their lives and see what they accomplished, what God accomplished through them in such a short time, and motivates us to look at our lives and say, what are we doing with them? Is each moment dedicated to our becoming the best version of ourselves? In other words, in our own divinization, as we say in the Byzantine church, our own holiness. St. Basil the Great was known, as we said, for the great theological writings, and we have a liturgy named after him. One of the reasons it's named after him, just as we have one named after St. John Chrysostom, is because it refers to the Eucharistic prayer, especially that's how it would be known in the West, the Eucharistic prayer. In the East, it's known as the anaphora. I'll give you a sample of the great prayer of St. Basil the Great. This is during the Eucharistic prayer, or anaphora, of the Byzantine liturgy. O eternal being, Master, Lord, God, Father Almighty and Adorable, it is truly proper and just and befitting the magnificence of your holiness to praise you, to sing you, to bless you, to worship you, to thank you, to glorify you, the only true God, and to offer you this, our spiritual worship, with contrite heart and humble spirit. For you have granted us the knowledge of your truth. Now, the prayer will start to shift a little bit now. It first acknowledges God in a very hieratic way, as you heard. Then it starts to say this, Who is able to proclaim your might, to make known all your praises, to recount all your mighty deeds in every age? Master of all, Lord of heaven and earth, and of all creation, visible and invisible, enthroned in glory, yet fathom in the depths, eternal, invisible, incomprehensible, boundless and changeless, Father of our great God, Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. You are revealed through him who is our hope, the image of your goodness, and the seal bearing your likeness. Okay, now the prayer goes on in that kind of vein. Notice what he's doing here. This is very much the style of Byzantine prayer set by people like St. Basil the Great. Lots and lots of words, lots and lots of lofty words, words that seem to have an almost an open-ended meaning to them, like, like, like we're trying to capture something that cannot be contained, and we're grasping for these very lofty and rich and powerful words, because we're describing God. We begin describing him on and on and on with one word after the other, like as if we can't do it, so we keep trying. And only then do we eventually come to asking God. You know, we sort of, I sometimes call it like, it's almost like buttering up daddy, like a little kid, so then we can ask him for something. <laughs> it's kind of like what we do when we pray in the liturgy. But that's also the formula that Christ gave us in the Our Father. Remember when he was asked, how do we pray? Basically, he said, butter daddy up. Call him daddy. Tell him how great he is. And then ask him for things. And at the end, tell him how great he is again. Basically, to put it simply, and that's the formula used by the great saints in the Byzantine liturgy. Now, we're going to move forward in the anaphora, the Eucharistic prayer, and what happens is Basil then goes into this beautiful remembrance. Remember, Lord, those who withdrawn from the world to live in life of monastic solitude and deserts and mountains. Remember, Lord, those who live in virginity and piety and those who practice asceticism live saintly lives. He goes on to remember all kinds of things. Remember, O Lord, those who are on trial in prisons and condemned to hard labor, everyone in affliction, need or distress, and all who stand in need of your great tenderness of heart, those who love us, those who hate us, and those who ask us to pray for them, unworthy though we be. There's so much more to this prayer of St. Basil the Great. That's why we call him the Great. He's too great for just one segment here of Light of the East. So I do want to thank you for listening. And I do want to thank you for listening to us throughout this year as we come to the end of this year. I want to thank you for gifting us with your presence, with your relationship to us, your friendship, your support as we come to this year and look forward to another one. I look forward to being with you and may God bless you. God is with us. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.
Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois 60491. That's Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>